Hello and welcome back to the Pave the Way podcast, a joint initiative with Rahagiri Foundation and the National Institute of Urban Affairs, where I, your host, Akash Basu, speak with mobility experts and people with interesting ideas around the globe on all kinds of issues and ideas surrounding sustainable mobility and transport planning. On today's episode, we have the honor of speaking with an assistant professor of transport and energy at Delft University of Technology in Netherlands, Dr. Natalia Barber. She studies travel behavior, shared modes, and adoption of new technologies, as well as teaches courses on transportation systems and climate change mitigation. She possesses extensive and multidisciplinary expertise in transportation and data analysis, travel behavior, new mobility, and shared mobility adoption with focus and interest in sustainability. Today, I have the honor of being able to pick Dr. Barber's brain on the importance of designing transport systems for vulnerable road users, the value of shared mobility systems, and more. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Barber. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure having you on. Uh, let's just get right into it. Um, I was reading a blog post on your website, and there was a line that caught my eye, which is, transportation systems are only as good as the mobility of their most vulnerable users, and they have been failing them over and over again. Um, could you elaborate on this? You know, How are we failing, and how do we need to rectify this? Sure. So first, I think we should actually consider what we mean by vulnerable users, because a lot of times this description is so vague, and I started to reflect on it, and then I came to the conclusion that those road users are everyone who are not drivers. And you should not be vulnerable to try to, when you're trying to cross your street, uh, and go to the grocery store, that should not make you vulnerable. But unfortunately, in our current transportation systems, that's the case that pedestrians, people with disabilities, uh, cyclists are vulnerable because they have to interact on a very small space with vehicles. And I do believe that there needs to be a little bit of a change to how we consider transportation systems and perhaps not even call these users vulnerable because this is all of us. Even the, the drivers are pedestrians at some point. That's correct. Of course, so one of the issues that is also a problem is harassment on, on our streets, right? Um, how big of an impact would you say mitigating harassment will have when we look at improving mobility systems? The research that has been done in this area shows that those issues prevent people from using public transportation and adjacent infrastructure. And it also carries through generations. So the children that we're raising will pick up the fears and behaviors that their caregivers are exhibiting. And that's not what we necessarily want. We don't want people not to use public transportation and sustainable modes. We want them to use them. 
And that's one of the biggest barriers, um, especially when someone travels at night or if it's a crowded train. So addressing and understanding the needs of those communities is the key to creating more equitable transportation system. And there have been some success stories on public transit or even new technologies like right sourcing, like with panic buttons or right sharing your right with your friend. So it's going in the right direction and it will likely take many, many years before the culture changes and it stops being acceptable because it's not only the technology, the policy, it's also the culture that we create and the people who stand by and are not saying anything. That's a whole another side to the story that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. When we talk about culture in India, it's almost seen as an unavoidable fact that there will be harassment on public transit, that there will be harassment on public spaces. And on top of that, even people, you know, road deaths, road crashes, we see it as inevitable and not many understand how preventable it is. So I think changing the culture is one that will take so long. Yes, and it's so normalized. And going back to your point about the crashes, it is so normalized to the point that on the statistics I looked up um, from 2017, so a few years ago, say that there are 16 fatalities every hour um, in India. Those are the people who die, and one is too many. And between 2011 and 2015, over 25,000 cyclists have been killed and, and pedestrians. So if that was anything else, there would be a public uh, health outcry and rage. But we're so accustomed to hearing about these news that that's also something that the culture needs to take in consideration and not consider it normal anymore because it's definitely not normal absolutely not i mean the numbers here are far from normal i mean the principle the vision zero principle is that any are abnormal i mean you have to design so that human error is taken out of it and we don't lose lives on our streets and we lose hundreds of thousands a year it's completely outrageous yeah, and, and UN says that 90% of road deaths happen in low and middle income countries. And even in more wealthy countries, it, they still affect lower social demographic groups mm -hmm. the most. So it's not like there are a lot of crashes to begin with. They don't even affect people the same. And usually the ones who need the most help are affected by them the most. So in addition to the harassment and, you know, the culture on transit, the whole another side is present in the crash culture and how we approach it. Mm -hmm. I had done a little research and I'd written an article sort of about where the burden actually lies. And when we look at people that come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, Traffic, deaths, crashes, injuries are not a poor man's problem, but it is important to recognize that they have to face it. You know, it's much harder for them to take it on. I mean, the financial burdens of injuries, you know, we we did a documentary um, where we interviewed people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who had been through this. And um, the injury seemed to be even more of a burden than if they had passed away. 
it's it's so difficult to take care of these people especially when it's the primary breadwinner and that is often the case especially in our low economic strata so yeah i think it's a good point which is recognizing this and understanding that the culture also needs to change um, that is truly heartbreaking and it's also important to note that how can you get better opportunities if you can't get to them mm-hmm. if there's no access point or no safe infrastructure or no public transit line that goes uh between you and your better opportunity that could make a better living for you and your family mm-hmm. absolutely i mean i think that comes down to creating a you know high quality public transport system that's safe i mean that that seems like based on my research it seems like it solves so many problems just like it can be the backbone of any physical urban fabric is just a good quality public transportation system i guess india is sort of working towards that but <laughs> let's not we're not talking about that today um what i actually want to talk about was really interesting it's something i haven't talked about with anybody else was that um i saw that one of your main research papers that you've done is around shared mobility systems and how they have revolutionized the way we perceive mobility could you just elaborate a little bit about what just for the viewers the listeners um about what shared mobility systems are and how you think they can change the way that transportation systems are viewed shared mobility is often perceived as something novel but if you think about it communities have been practicing sharing their resources for centuries Mm-hmm. what has changed is that technology right now that gives people the opportunity to share one's resources outside of that immediate community and that what happens with a lot of um new modes uh like peer to peer car sharing or even um you know there's some outside of mobility there are some tool sharing websites um or other more expensive items that are shared because in reality we do not consume 90 100% of what this particular item gives us we only consume a little bit and then this item whether it's a car or a tool sits in a place and no one is using it so shared mobility captures that unused capacity and in transportation creates enormous opportunities um to prevent further production to increase efficiency of our cars or other even uh scooters or bicycles mm-hmm. so something like car sharing I, the benefits of car sharing can be it's so obvious right which is that ideally there'll be you know people are using less energy on doing it and all of that but so like in india that doesn't seem like a, it does, it's it's not even something that's discussed um is car sharing and let's say the sh- like shared vehicles and stuff is it is it a big trend in any countries it's it's becoming and there like you you meant just mentioned there are a lot of barriers like insurance companies or public acceptance those are the barriers that stand in the way of even thinking that i'm going to let someone else use my car is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I actually did a research on peer to peer car sharing, but not on who the users are going to be, but who the people are who are willing to rent their vehicle to peer to peer car sharing fleet. And I thought that if the opportunity is there, everyone will have a similar way to approach it. But 
that's far from the truth because I found that women and people from one person household, so those um, without children, are very unlikely to rent their car into the peer-to-peer car sharing fleet. And if we take a moment to reflect why women are less likely to rent their car into peer-to-peer car sharing fleet, that opens up a whole new window of discussion. So when you rent your car to peer-to-peer car sharing fleet, the main driver is economic uh, because you want to make money from your unused uh, resource. And women who are not likely to do it, they miss out on that economic opportunity. And that is likely combined with them historically having to do more caregiving trips or being more reliant on their vehicle due to safety reasons. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting finding. Um, One thing that's also, so of course, when talking about shared mobility systems, one aspect is car sharing, bike sharing. Um, but I'd also seen that ride sourcing is quite a central part to the idea of shared mobility. Um, so how integral do you see ride sharing systems like Uber, Lyft, Ola here in India when it comes to the future of urban mobility? I do believe it has, if done right, of course, it has opportunity. And there are different type of ride sharing. I mean, ride sourcing, there's sequential that you come in after someone else left the vehicle and there's simultaneous Mm -hmm. when a lot of people occupy the vehicle and go to the same destination when there is just one person in a car going to a single destination it's not as efficient Mm -hmm. because then there's a lot of deadheading however if somehow we can convince people to use it simultaneously, meaning multiple people to the same destination, then perhaps that debt heading would make a little bit more sense. So uh, I do believe there is a place for that because it expands geographical, uh, it expands geographically, meaning the communities who had no access to transportation now they can use um, right sourcing services. So there is a place for it in our current um, mobility paradigm. However, I think we should remain cautious and bet on multiple people going to the same location. Mm-hmm. And I think that would make way more sense and be more environmental, more efficient, whatnot. Certainly, but that's not really how it is necessarily. It's not. It's not uh, because there is, and that's exactly what I decided to study, that propensity to share. Because there's some people who will share the ride, they'll participate in bike sharing, they'll participate in different aspects of mobility sharing. And there are a lot of people who do not want to share anything. And that's exactly what my research focused on, to be able to say within a statistical certainty who those people are and how they behave. That's interesting. Um, yeah, on that note, I mean, I, that paper that you had written, it talks about a lot of different social demographic factors that affect our propensity to use and participate in shared mobility. Are there any maybe particularly interesting ones, uh, factors that you'd maybe want to elaborate on? 
Yes. So for example, for right sourcing, I found that people who are above 50 with children and have BMI over 30, and that would fall into the obese category, are more likely to never use right sourcing. And that's interesting finding because the people above 50 and those with children, um, those are the communities who have not had their mobility needs met historically. And then yet there is another barrier to right sourcing. We don't know what that is. Maybe the, the lack of car seats. Um, maybe, you know, there is a technological gap that the older people do not know how to get um, right sourcing app or use it. So there are definitely a lot of barriers in, in even right sourcing. And what I also found that there is a propensity to participating in sharing or shared mobility. Um, people who are registered users for bike sharing, they'll be more likely to rent their vehicle into the peer-to-peer -peer car sharing fleet. So I, I found that there's a certain personality type that makes us more willing to use uh, sharing economy. And on bike sharing, I was able to capture who the regular user is. And regular users do not use the system multiple times a week because if you bike so much, you own your own bicycle. Mm -hmm. But what I found is that regular user, user uses the system at least once a month. Um, so those would be the, the type of user for, for bike sharing. And who I also found that more likely to use bike sharing are men from one person household. So again, gender and presence of children hugely dictate our mobility behavior. And that's, again, something that our commute-based transportation systems all over the world have not really addressed. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to gender, I think you had said one is that females are less likely to participate in ride sharing was there anything else like were there any other more you know interesting findings within the gender realm of understanding shared mobility yes definitely the bike typ typical cyclist even typical cyclists taking aside uh, a bike sharing uh, women tend to be less likely to cycle uh, usually mm -hmm. in most countries um, they're less likely to participate in bike sharing and I did not find the gender effect in right sourcing, but I found presence of children. And again, historically, women have taken a lot of um, care trips. So that could be the issue. Um, and lastly, the peer-to-peer -peer car sharing, as we discussed a minute ago, also women are less likely to participate. So there is an opportunity in capturing that and perhaps stimulating that behavior among women. Uh, that could be through potentially putting kit seats on bike sharing or creating um, more favorable conditions to renting one's car mm -hmm. or, you know, even something as simple as offering discounts or some social campaigns. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but there is opportunity that could definitely be captured. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. I mean that that I I going through your research paper. I saw some of these. I think it's really cool. Um, the last question I'll ask I'll I'll ask is this is called the Pave the Way podcast. And at the end of the podcast, we always ask our guests, you know, what's the way forward or what do you see on the way forward. So, when looking at the benefits of shared mobility systems, there are so many. 
what do you think is the way forward for to for this to be adopted in a much greater way you know i i mean even if it's growing i mean i i don't have much knowledge on how how utilized it is in other countries but obviously in india it's not utilized at all so how do you pave the way forward in making it a vet, like a viable and attractive option to people first i'd like to speak on uh, what you just referred to and second more on the indian context mm-hmm. so for shared mobility to be viable uh we need of course political support and also in a lot of my research i found that once a certain individual tries something it could change how they feel about this mode or this behavior so perhaps allowing people to try certain modes or encouraging sharing so it, it does not seem so scary anymore and doing it right could change their behavior in the long term of course there are different steps of changing one's behavior that does not happen immediately but through experience and there could be a lot of incentives through companies um that stimulate sharing resources like um carpooling or you know car free day um or any of these they have been shown to be successful in some places and of course it first is individual level and then if we have enough individuals it becomes collective level but starting small and to pave the way in the indian context i think that in a global as well our reliance on fossil fuels how do we minimize that reliance and whether it's sharing a ride with someone so only one car uses the gas that has been put in it or uh, substituting modes but that is overarching umbrella of shared mobility um giving the freedom to people and having them decide how they want to travel and how we make decisions today will impact the freedom of people and our children in the Uh, future so two things stimulating shared mobility at the same time decreasing reliance on, on fossil fuels particularly right now um when the oil prices are high um developing new communities identifying the needs of the communities so then perhaps most of the trips there's this um in, info on twitter going around that 50 or 60 trips are below um uh, 3 miles that's outstanding opportunity why aren't we connecting these communities and building multiple lanes i looked up statistics and in india 8% of families only owns a car and of course that varies uh, throughout different geographical locations but most of the infrastructure has been built for cars and that then leads to unsafe um mobility behaviors then that leads to economic gaps because they're expensive the gas prices so altogether it's very complex environment so starting small that would be my answer starting small that's a good answer i think when i was speaking with daniel it was the same thing you have to start small you have to start with something and slow small gradual changes will make the difference i think another common thing with everyone i speak with there's it always comes up that we don't really we don't realize how many pedestrians cyclists and people who don't have cars are actually on the street like it's a lot more than the people that have cars yet we continue to cater to cars when will that change 
and you don't see them, right? Like yeah. it's it's not like you see them because they're small and they're often not even going outside because of fear. And right. this weather uh, argument has been disrupted by uh, the Dutch cyclists who cycle in hail, who yeah. cycle in rain. And the weather is really just an excuse. So you either find the reasons to do it or excuses not to do it. Mm -hmm. And then it depends on what we want as a society. Mm -hmm. I think also if the system decides to cater towards these people, we'll see it more. Right? I mean, I think some, there's many transportation systems, including ours, right? Like, like we did this thing where we, we, we've now put a cyclist counter on one of our busier roads because we we saw that the amount of cyclists on that street was just being heavily underestimated but putting that you see that there's that's sort of invisible but you know we're all we're looking for is a cycle lane there is no cycle lane there they have to share the space with cars and now that we know how many people there we're hoping that that will at least push people to act and at least produce a cycle lane you know i think if infrastructure is designed for these people then it will be used and particularly in, in the context of developing countries, it's we know what happens when we build car infrastructures, when we build all the crazy high, highways. We know what happens. There are empty downtowns. There is no liveliness anywhere. So it's not like back in the day people didn't know. Now we know. And, and a lot of countries who are now just building their infrastructure have the opportunity to learn from the mistakes that have been made before they are growing their cities. And they have this amazing opportunity to learn from that. Um, so that I think is something optimistic to mm -hmm. highlight. Fingers, yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed they take these opportunities. Yes. Well, that's uh, that's all of my questions. I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. I think you've given our listeners a valuable insight into topics that have, we haven't spoken about on this podcast. Even I didn't really have much knowledge on. So from me and the viewers, I think it was a lot of value from this conversation. And um, I look forward to your research and the value you will provide moving forward as well. Thanks so much for having me. And it was so fun chatting with you. Thanks for all the work that you guys are doing. Keep it up and fingers crossed. Wow, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Take care.